I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We are your hosts. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And I am Yvette Gentile. And as always, we are with our amazing producer, Mr. Trevor Young. Hey, hey. How's it going? Aloha, Trevor. Hey, Trevor. So um, I know we have a pretty interesting case coming up today. A very important case has to do with the existence of, you know, sexual assault in uh, the Catholic Church, which I know can be a very touchy issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to get into a very, I think, powerful story that illustrates some of those issues. But you know, in that vein, I was thinking back as we were starting research for this case uh, about the movie Spotlight. I don't know if you all remember watching that. It had Michael Keaton, but it was about some of the uh, very real life events involving uh, sexual misconduct in the Catholic Church in Boston. It was a very good movie. I think it won Best Picture of the Year it came out. Yeah, I, I remember that that movie very well. Um you know, me, myself being Catholic and, um, you know, becoming a Catholic actually when I got married to my husband who was, you know, born and raised in the Catholic community. But for me, my mom couldn't remember if she had been baptized or not. And I just really wanted that blessing. Um, if you had been baptized or not, right? Yeah. If I had been baptized or not, but, um, yeah, I, I do remember that movie and it's, it's a very, very sad movie. But I also want to talk about the keepers, and we're going to get into that, you know, much later in the episode. But my voice is a little hoarse because I just had laryngitis. But while I was home, I spent seven hours watching this particular documentary called The Keepers. And it was mind blowing. And we will talk about that later. And Trevor, now, will you take us through today's case? I've talked to the hunter that found Kathy, and he said since the day that he found her, the police have never talked to him, except for that day. They sought to do the same thing that senior church leaders in the diocese we investigated have done for decades, bury the sexual abuse by priests upon children and cover it up forever. And I can hear Kathy saying, I told you I'd take care of this. 
And I said, I didn't think you meant 20 years later. Sister Catherine Sesnick was a young teacher at a Catholic school in Baltimore, Maryland. Early on the evening of November 7, 1969, she disappeared while out running errands in her neighborhood. The next morning, two friends found Sister Kathy's car parked haphazardly nearby. But weeks went by with no sign of Kathy. Finally, on January 3, 1970, the body of Sister Catherine Sesnick was found in a remote area south of the city. No one was ever charged with her murder, but some of the investigators were suspicious of the community in the Catholic school where she taught, especially one of the priests. In the years that followed, more and more sinister events came to light, painting a story of sexual abuse and intimidation at the hands of a powerful diocese that controlled everyone in its territory, including the police. And so, what happened to Kathy Sesnick? Why weren't the police able to make a determination in her case? And what does the story reveal about the dark secrets of the Catholic Church? Okay, you guys, this is one that we really have to buckle up for. I mean, this case just gets more and more crazy, you know, as you go along. The stories that we've told this season, they've touched on some major issues and today really is no different. But we're looking at sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, which is a huge, huge issue that is still very prevalent today. Yeah, it's really just, I think, one of many. You know, it seems like every year there's another story of how this sort of wide-scale abuse is allowed to go on somewhere or it's just swept under the rug entirely, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think no matter your personal faith, this story especially illustrates the enormous power that a religious group or institution can have over an entire city, a community, a neighborhood. And I think that's super dangerous. And this story is a huge example of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Trevor. It's a very dangerous issue. I was actually doing some research and the numbers don't lie. They show that in the United States alone, more than 11,000 complaints have been documented by victims of abuse by priests. Like, that's a lot. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. And you have to remember, too, that's just those that have told their stories, right? Right. The documented cases. Right. There are so many other people that have not even come out yet. So, yeah, that number is shocking, but you know there's way more. Yeah, way more. Yeah, and there are numbers like that for countries all over the world, not just the U.S. So this story of Sister Catherine Sesnick just brings this issue down to a human scale, right? It's just a super insane, crazy story, but sister Kathy Sesnick was a human. Yeah, so let's talk about Kathy Sesnick then. She grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She had three siblings, uh, was supposedly very bright, and by many accounts just had this very sparkling personality. She was also an achiever. She was senior class president, a member of student council, and even May Queen at her school. But she was also valedictorian of her high school. And then after that, she joined the School Sisters of Notre Dame. So she then goes on to be a teacher at Archbishop Keogh High School in Baltimore, Maryland. It was an all-girls school, and she taught English there as well as drama. And everyone said that her students loved her. She was, you know, everybody's favorite teacher. Yeah, so I read this 
Huffington Post article, and it says that Sister Kathy Sesnick was a real-life version of Maria, like the Julie Andrews character from The Sound of Music. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was super exuberant. She sang, she played her guitar, and her students would even drop by her apartment, you know, and they would sing and dance. (laughs) And, you know, when I hear that, I think of like Sister Act. You know right. <laughs> the uh, the character in in Sister Act, um, Sister Mary Robert, who was like always smiling and you know happy to see her students and so giving. Like she seemed exactly like that. Yeah, um, all of those beautiful things that you've just said about her, Yvette. I think it absolutely makes what happened next so heartbreaking. On the evening of November 7th, 1969, she left her apartment, which she happened to share with another nun. She left to go buy a gift for her sister's engagement party. It was around 7.30 at night that she left to go um, go on this errand. And apparently she got into her car, stopped at the bank to cash her paycheck, and then she went to a local bakery and bought some bakery buns. And that was the last time anyone ever saw her alive. We'll talk about what happened after we take a quick break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So after Sister Kathy Sesnick didn't return home, her roommate was, of course, frantic. And she later told reporters, quote, nuns in their order didn't stay out late. And Kathy would have called if she needed to run an additional errand, end quote. But now it was 11 o'clock at night and she hadn't heard from her. So she called a couple of priests who were their good friends. So these particular priests came over immediately um, and they had learned what had happened. At 4.40 in the morning, the priests decided to take a walk around the area. That's when they found Kathy's car. It was parked carelessly across the street from the apartment even though she had her own designated parking spot right behind the building. And it didn't look good. They saw signs of a struggle, including a broken umbrella in the back seat. They called the police, who found that box of bakery buns she had purchased, along with leaves and twigs. 
branches had also been caught in the car's antenna. Yeah, so a quick sidebar that we should mention about one of the priests who comes over to investigate. His name was Gerard Koob, and he was apparently uh, totally like in love with Kathy Sesnick, and that is a whole myriad of problems. Um, right. You know, Yvette, you can probably chime in here, but my understanding is that in the Catholic Church, you know, you're not supposed to have any sort of romantic relationship, certainly not nuns, but I don't think priests either. Is that correct? That is very true. That is very true. You take you take a vow. Yeah. So priests and nuns take vows. And nuns, yes. Mm. Right, right. So it, in fact, uh, you know, two years before this event happened, uh, before either of them had actually taken said vows, Kathy and Gerard had spent, I guess, a lot of time together. They had written each other letters. He even asked her to marry him, but she turned him down, I guess, wanting to, you know, maintain her job. <laughs> right. And apparently three days before she disappeared, he even called her one last time to tell her that he loved her. And he told her he would leave the priesthood to marry her if she'd leave the nunhood to, you know, for them to be together. And I don't think she went for it. I'm not sure what to think, you know, like... Was it romantic or is it suspicious? I kind of always go back to Rasha, you know, when she says it's always the boyfriend or, you know, <laughs> right. it's always the romantic, you know, the love interest. Um, but, you know, I do feel like this is how rumors get started. Mm -hmm. Unrequited love leads to something. Yeah. yeah. I think it's maybe possibly romantic in, you know, the case of there not being a homicide involved. True, true. Uh, but true. the fact that someone was killed, you know, I think makes it very suspicious. Mm -hmm. You know, and even if there wasn't a death involved in this, you know, there's something I think kind of creepy about it, you know. It, it's not quite to the level of, you know, say a stalker, which we talked about on the previous episode, mm -hmm. but somebody who's just kind of so obsessed that they're willing to forego certain boundaries that someone has put up in their right. life mm -hmm. uh, always strikes me as problematic. You know, that's a, that's always a bit of a red flag for me. Asking someone to leave the nunhood to run off with them, you know, and they've clearly said that they are like uncomfortable with this before, mm -hmm. right? Like, I, I, I think there's probably something there to look at that's not what it should be. For mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, police actually brought Gerard Koop in for questioning. But he had an alibi of having been at the movies earlier that night. So I guess that was that. He had a solid alibi for where he was. So it wasn't the unrequited love interest. <laughs> Got it. So there ends up being a massive manhunt with 35 Baltimore officers and residents of the area joining in, sweeping a 14-block area of southwest Baltimore. But they don't find anything. And more importantly, Baltimore police tell the media they do not believe foul play was involved. Yeah, I mean, that and that strikes me as just that statement alone when you you don't really know. Right. That's political mm -hmm. agenda. I mean, to me. Right. Because there were sticks and branches that were found in her car and other clear signs of a struggle. But the police say that they don't think that there's foul play. So. That doesn't sit too well. Yeah. Um, but finally, on January 3rd, Kathy's body is found uh, by a father and a son out on a hunting trip in Lansdowne, which I believe that's a remote area uh, south of Baltimore. Yep. I've actually driven through there. Have you? Uh, anyways, the police said it was likely that she had been either carried or forced to walk down there. 
And an autopsy found a skull fracture caused by a blow to her head with some sort of blunt instrument, Mm -hmm. most likely a brick, they said. Uh, And the pathologist noted that the, quote, disarray of clothing suggested possible rape. But unfortunately, that's about as far as the police get with this. Investigators work on the case up until 1977, but, you know, honestly, they're unable to make any real breakthrough. Do they say to the lack of any physical evidence in the case, even though we know there's quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So in 1977, they closed the case. But that is not the end of the story. So fast forward to 1994. Two former students of Archbishop Keogh, that's the school where Sister Kathy Sesnick taught, file a lawsuit against a priest in that school whose name is Joseph Maskell. So the suit claims he sexually abused them repeatedly when they were students there. The women filing the suit are named Jean Wayner and Teresa Lancaster. And apparently, these are not the first accusations Maskell has faced, by the way. In fact, back in the 1960s and 70s, Maskell was widely feared in the school because everyone, including the students and the staff, knew he was a predator. But no one spoke up about it. Right. So you guys know how I love documentaries. And I talked about this earlier um, in the beginning of our episode about this documentary, The Keepers. Mm -hmm. And in it, Teresa Lancaster says, when you were called over the loudspeaker to report to Father Maskell, a dead silence would come over the classroom and other girls would look at you with sad eyes and the teacher would just look down. They knew something was going on. Wow. And then he gets accused of this. It's so, so disgustingly awful. And it's so shameful, right? Like it's like this abuse has been normalized. Like that mom stood up for for her son, but no one was standing up for these girls at Keogh. It's, yeah, it's heartbreaking to me. Mm-hmm. Right. So obviously these claims against Father Maskell are pretty egregious. And Teresa Lancaster said that Father Maskell took her to a gynecologist named Christian Richter, who prescribed douches that the priest then administered himself <sighs> in his school office. And numerous others after this stepped forward to say that he assaulted them frequently in his office. This is not a one-time occurrence. And I think it's also important to note here that these claims are in fact corroborated by court records, as well as interviews with up to eight other Keo students. So there's clearly a pattern here, right? Clearly. <sighs> and he wasn't stopped. Oh, I'm so grossed out. Yeah. So basically, this was an open secret and this reign of terror by a criminal man who used his power as a priest and his power in the church as an authoritative figure to literally intimidate everyone. But I I feel the most for these young girls who were students at this school and they were completely trapped. They probably felt like they had nowhere to go. Exactly. And no one to tell, you know. But we also know that this did not go unnoticed. And at least one person did try to stop it from the inside. And that person was Sister Kathy Sesnick. Yes. And this gets into a big conspiracy. And we will talk about that right after we take another quick break. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. There was at least one person who we know of who was fighting back against Father Joseph Maskell. And that person is the popular young teacher, Sister Kathy Sesnick. Her students loved her, and many of them confided in her about the abuse of Maskell and his colleagues. And she tried to stop it by doing things like making excuses for girls when he was calling them to his office, you know, like saying things, oh, they can't get there, or they couldn't get away. Sorry about that. <laughs> In May of 1969, Sister Kathy had approached young Jean Wayner and just asked her straight out whether the priest had been hurting her. And Jean admitted that, yes, they had. And apparently, Kathy promised her that something would be done about it and basically tells her to go off and just try to enjoy her summer because she was going to take care of it. And apparently, this is where things start to really take a dark turn. So as we know, Kathy Sesnick disappeared in November of 1969 uh, and then was found dead the following January. But after she went missing, Jean Wayner says that Father Maskell took her, Jean, for a car ride which I guess was a common thing that the priests would just take these young girls for trips places, right? Uh, I guess at the time, families really trusted these priests like Joseph Maskell to do this. Um, But when Jean and Father Maskell get out of the car after they've driven somewhere, he walks her over to a field where she says that she saw Sister Kathy's body there in the field. Some pretty graphic details here for anybody who's sensitive to that. If you are, I recommend you skip ahead a few seconds. So, according to the Huffington Post, quote, Sesnick was still clad in her aqua-colored coat, and maggots were crawling on her face. Wayner tried to brush them off with her bare hands. Help me get these off of her, she cried, turning to Maskell in a panic. Instead, she says, the priest leaned down behind her and whispered in her ear, You see what happens when you say bad things about people? Hmm. Shit. It makes my skin mm-hmm. crawl, my blood boil to think that, you know, a priest who you look up to supposedly trust and this is going on, you can't make this up. This is like a movie, right? But this is actually happening. Yeah. I mean, this is something you would expect to see like in The Godfather, right? right? Like it's just 
absolutely insane, like too diabolical to, you know, even be real. Um, but when Jean Wainer finally builds up the courage to tell the story in 1994, she describes details about Kathy Sesnick's body that were only known to investigators at the time, like the blue coat. Exactly. And then there's Teresa Lancaster, the other woman who filed the 1994 suit along with Jean Wainer. And it's important to note here that both of these women were actually anonymous at the time of the filing. And Teresa, at the time, she also experienced retaliation for confiding in Sister Kathy. She claims that Maskell drove her out to a wooded area where there were lots of police milling around and that two police officers raped her in the backseat while Maskell stood outside of the police car talking and laughing with the other cops. I mean, this is just pure evil on every level possible. So I think it's interesting here to realize that this is now becoming a much bigger issue, right? This is no longer just about abuse within mm-hmm, the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. Obviously, that's a huge part of it. But now we're seeing law enforcement get involved yes. uh, in a very dark way, a very criminal way. Yeah. Um, and so what we're seeing is this balloon out, this picture of abuse and cover-up that involves an entire city and all of the forces within a city like law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, this explains a lot, you know, obviously about why the police never solved this case because so many of them were a part of it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's it's just, it's really just corruption at every level. It's when you talk about above the law, this is that and so much more. Right, it's... it's um different types of people, but they're all taking advantage of authority and power in very evil ways, right? Yeah. So this actually reminds me of the corruption that was happening in LAPD when our great-grandfather, George Hodel, was accused of killing Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia, because he had so much, so much dirt on the police officers of the LAPD, we all believe that's one of the reasons that he was never convicted, you know, like corruption to the nth level. And that's it feels just like that right now. Yeah, this can take place in Baltimore, L.A., you know, 1940s, mm-hmm. 1960s, whenever. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, other victims also describe Maskell as bringing them to places where police officers would abuse them. So this is just keeps going on. It turns out that Maskell's brother was a police lieutenant, and it seems he really had the entire police force in the area under his complete control. Mm. So they're like one family that has authority over this entire region. Feels very much like the Godfather. (laughs) So gross. And so, Yvette, as you said earlier, this is probably a huge part of the reason why, again, this case wasn't solved because the police are in on this. So other media reports on the story have pointed out that as late as 1994, there is still really no justice. The court dismisses all the claims against Maskell at that point because it's past the statute of limitations. So in Maryland, victims of sexual abuse have just three years from the time the abuse ends or from when they discover it to file a civil suit, which is not a long time. No. I mean, three years, that's, I mean, that's just ridiculous. That has to change. Yeah, especially for sexual abuse. 
So it's basically saying it's too late because your memory may not be reliable enough. Meanwhile, all these other women are coming together and corroborating on the same type of abuse, mm-hmm. right? That has happened mm-hmm. to to Jean and to Teresa. Uh, and what is that? Yeah, so the idea there with statute of limitations is that after a certain number of years, your account as an eyewitness is just not as reliable, like you said, because of memory or whatever. But, you know, I think if you have enough detail and you have, you know, enough of a pattern of abuse, and especially like this kind of abuse, like I don't think this is something that you forget. Like I don't think your memory is just going to fade about being raped by two police officers after three years. Mm -mm. Like that's something that is going to stay with these women for the rest of their lives. Exactly, Trevor. Exactly. You don't forget about that. These women fight every day to probably just walk through life because that is a memory that is so deep embedded in their spirit. True. And, you know, the law is frequently unjust. And this is why we have things like amendments to improve upon this. Right. right? Um, But it doesn't end there. A police detective talking anonymously to the Huffington Post said that he got a call in 1994 from a gravedigger. The man said that Maskell had ordered him to bury a bunch of boxes in the graveyard. When police went and dug them up, one of those boxes contained a bunch of nude photos of underage girls. But then, when all the boxes were delivered to the evidence room, those containing the photos were inexplicably missing. Uh, Other retired detectives have also come forward in recent years and confirmed that they were, quote, pressured to back off the Catholic priests during their investigations. Gross. It's obvious that this was a cover-up, you know, at the highest level possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this goes from being a conspiracy theory to a full-blown conspiracy that can be proven and corroborated and every detail of it tracked down. Right. right? Uh, Unfortunately, none of this really leads to a lot of consequences For Joseph Maskell, in 1994, he was removed from the ministry, but he fled to Ireland, uh, where until his death in 2001, at age 62, he worked as a psychologist and unfortunately, supposedly, continued his pattern of abuse while working there. So basically, nothing happened to him. There were no consequences. And I'm sure he continued to do it over and over and over again. Because he got away with it. They let him, they let him get away with it. Right. That was his entire life. He knew nothing else and he'd gotten away with it for so long. But uh, it's not until 2016 that the Archdiocese of Baltimore releases a list of 71 clergymen that had been accused of sexual abuse and then back that up with credible evidence. And Maskell is on that list. Of course he is. And I'm sure he was at the top of the list. Yeah. But conveniently, it was after he died, of course. And victims of the listed clergy are offered money. They got financial settlements by the archdiocese for that abuse. And some victims claimed that considering the sheer horrificness of these crimes, that money was not enough. They wanted to see... (laughs) legal changes, like you always tell us, Trevor. And they wanted to see changes within the church. And they wanted to prevent anything like this from happening again in the future. Yeah. I mean, money money can't buy what they've been through. I mean, nope. they, it can't take that away. 
It's just, I, I can't even tell you guys, like just spending seven hours of watching this documentary and I had no voice and I was yelling like through my spirit of what these victims had gone through. And then to offer them, you know, it was something like twenty five to $50,000. Like that's nothing compared to what they've been through. I do want to say this, you know, one good thing, we always look for that silver lining. That school, Keo, was torn down. It's no longer there. And, you know, the fact that these women, some of these women were there, like when it came down was, you know, I, w- I don't want to say um, closure because, you know, they can never have closure on, you know, something so evil that happened to them. But I think there was a part of them that just the fact that this was no longer there helped in some way. That's so beautiful to hear that that school, Keo, was torn down. You know, we also have some additional momentum going in the right direction. In recent years, more and more people have joined the fight for justice in this case. So a school alumni group that began with one person asking questions on Facebook has exploded and sparked a brand new murder investigation into the murder of Sister Kathy Sesnick. It's officially an open case again. And this quest for justice has brought all of these women together and has helped so many of those abuse survivors find healing and find support. And that brings us to this week's Imua. This week's message of hope and healing goes out to Jean Weiner, Teresa Lancaster, and the thousands of women and men like them who have come out about abuse they have suffered at the hands of religious clergy. It is for the founders of SNAP, the grassroots survivors network of those abused by priests. Back in 1993, when SNAP held listening sessions for survivors to tell their stories, not a single Catholic bishop came out to hear them. But the group persevered and grew. It is making noise and sparking change. The stories of abuse are painful to hear, but more painful still is to have lived them and to have your voice silenced when you try to speak your truth. Because so many have stepped forward and refused to be ignored, people are now listening. And calls for changes such as the elimination of statutes of limitations for reporting abuse, are getting louder. To all the victims out there, those who have come forward and those who have not, we see you, we wish you justice, we wish you healing, and most importantly, we wish you peace. Onward and upward. Imua. Imua. That's our show for today. If you are a survivor of clergy abuse, the advocacy group SNAP has resources that you can turn to. Visit snapnetwork.org. That's snapnetwork, all one word, dot org. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case you'd like for us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one favor, if you haven't done it already, please 
Leave us a review and a good rating if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Claudia D'Africo. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.